Got in last night from camp. The Red Cross is still open, so we got our blood transfusions. The mosquitoes took quite a bit, so so we had to get filled up. No, just kidding. Um, I apologize in advance. I taught fourth to sixth graders all week, so if I'm in my fourth to sixth grade boys, then I'm, I apologize for that. Um, I'll try to speak to adults there. Uh, so uh, we've been reading through um, and, and uh, going uh, in camp, trying to do camp, and trying to stay up uh, current with with our reading is a, a little bit of a challenge. Um, so in reading, um, I, I came up to Luke chapter seven, which is where we're going to be today. And I, I was wondering if John the Baptist wondered if he knew who he was. And say, what do you mean you knew who he was? So last week, uh, I was uh, thankful to. Uh, to John for taking my, my Malachi class uh, for the adults. and What an incredible thing uh, to, to read the end of Malachi. And here's this double, kind of this double-pronged prophecy, the prediction of, of the New Testament. And, and the New Testament, or the Old Testament, excuse me, closes with these words about John the Baptist and, and that he was going to come, he was going to be like Elijah, there was going to be somebody like Elijah who was coming. Uh, and I wonder if John the Baptist read that and knew that that was about him. So well, why wouldn't he? We know it. Right? And, and one of the things that I've observed is that when you can look back, way back at things, seem, everything seems so clear. And yet at the time, for the most part, people have difficulty in that time understanding when things are about them. Now, sometimes it's pretty clear. Like, uh, for example, we talked about Daniel, and, and remember that all the statue, right? And then there's the head of gold and everything else. And, and Daniel just came out and he said, uh, Listen, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold is you. And I'm sure he was like, You betcha. That's me. Right? Uh, and so, so that was pretty obvious. But, but sometimes... We have difficulty knowing uh, if something's about us, and, and for the most part, it usually isn't, right? Uh, uh, and uh, anyway, no one, I, we get into discussions, there's a discussion um, at a camp, and then I didn't get into it because I was busy trying to, to, to do the kids' class and, and stay current with, with everything I was teaching them, so, so I didn't get into it, but there, there were people discussing various topics, and I could hear them over here. We were in the, in the cafeteria, and I'm trying to work on my class, and, and, uh, and they were having theological discussions, a couple of uh, teachers and various people who have been to Bible college, and I really want to go over there. I really wanted to go over there and put in my two sets, but I didn't because I had a class to teach. Uh, and they were talking about Revelation. Everyone loves to talk about Revelation. The thing about Revelation is, no matter how many people are talking about Revelation, no one agrees. That's, that's a, the, pretty much the guarantee about the book of Revelation is, is everybody's got their own thoughts, and it's really difficult. But I don't think anyone that I've ever met, uh, including these people in this discussion, would go, yeah, that's me. I am the dragon. You know, or, or whatever the thing is, you know, in the, the book of Revelation. No, no one goes, that's me. Uh, it takes a pretty proud person to go, here's a Bible prophecy statement and say, that's me. And yet... John the Baptist could have said, this is about me, but I wonder if he did, because he was a fairly humble person. I want to turn to the book of Luke. We're going to read our text in Luke chapter 7. And here's why I say I I don't think that he knew it was about him. 
Luke chapter 7, begins in verse 18. He says, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. Now, we need to set the scene here. John the Baptist is in prison. He will not be released from prison. He will die. He will be executed here shortly. So John called two of his disciples and sent them to him, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, the Messiah, that is, or do we look for another? And that very hour he was curing many people of their infirmities, afflictions, evil spirits, and giving sight to the blind. And Jesus answered, and he said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard that the blind see, that the lame walk, that the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor of the gospel preach to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me, or who doesn't stumble. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitude concerning John. He said, What did you go out to see in the wilderness? A reed shaken by the wind? No, what did you go out to see? A man clothed with fine clothing? No. Indeed, those who are gorgeously clothed, that live in luxury, they are in king's court. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Oh, yes. And I say to you much more than a prophet, it is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, in the closing words of Malachi, who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors, justified God, having been baptized with baptism of John, but the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what shall I liken a men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children who sit in the marketplace. And they yelled to one another and they said, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We mourned and you did not weep. And John the Baptist came neither eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, He's got a demon. The son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton, a wine bibber, that means a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by her children. And we're gonna, you get to that last part, and that kind of, Jesus kind of throws us for a loop. We're gonna, we're gonna see what that's talking about and how that ties in. But I want to begin by noticing that Jesus, that John really couldn't have had full confidence that he was the fulfillment of Malachi because, because John was directly connected to Jesus. He's not just his cousin, but, but he was the messenger. And we see here that, that John has some doubts as to who Jesus was. Well, if Jesus wasn't who he was, then John couldn't be who John was. Right. And so he kind of doubting himself. Maybe, maybe I wasn't the messenger. Maybe, maybe that wasn't me. Maybe, maybe I thought it a little bit when I said, See, I must decrease, that he might increase, kind of at the beginning of, of his ministry. But maybe he's having some doubts here, because he's not seeing the end of it all. I want you to understand that it is okay to doubt. Now, when I say that, I need to be a little clear 
on the definition of things. Because when we read the scriptures, we're going to see quite a few times where Jesus says, Oh, ye of little faith. And he doesn't mean it in a complimentary way. We see him get exasperated with people and say, Oh, how long am I going to have to be with these people? I mean, Jesus, Jesus criticizes a lack of faith quite a few times. So how can you say that it's okay to doubt? I want you to notice that when Jesus criticizes doubt, that there's a particular type of doubt that he criticizes. And it is the lack of practical application to a person's faith. When a person doesn't have the faith to carry through with something, that's what he always criticizes. Peter comes out of the boat. Oh, yes. I will. I can do it. Yes, I will do this. I will follow you wherever you go. And Peter gets in a mess every time he opens his mouth. Every time he opens his mouth, he gets in a mess. And, and, and we see him right out of the boat, boom, starts to go down. Oh, ye of little faith. Okay. Criticize. Because he couldn't carry through. We see Jesus come and heal a boy who has demons. And he throws him into the fire and he gives him seizures and all sorts of stuff. And they said, your disciples couldn't heal it. He says, oh, ye of little faith, how long will I be with these people? Because they didn't have the faith to carry through with something. But you will notice that Jesus never criticizes when people struggle with an intellectual thought. Never criticize. You believe. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And Jesus does a miracle for the man. Why? Because he realizes the man is struggling with an intellectual conundrum inside his head. And he gives people time to come to something. Look at our text. Do you see in here any, any criticism of John? There is no criticism of John. John is struggling with something. Intellectually, he's struggling with something. It never caused John to, to stop what he was doing. John never, ever for a moment let his lack of intellectual struggle or, or intellectual confidence that never stopped what he was doing. He never said, I'm pretty sure it's the same. I'm not 100% sure, so I'm just going to stop right there. Never. And so Jesus never criticizes them. He says, what did you go out to see? Did you go out to see a, a nicely dressed man, a pretty boy? I want you to notice, in the Bible there are three, I'm sure there were a lot more, but we know of three men who took a Nazarite vow. And I want you to notice that they are all very imposing people. And we, maybe we don't think, we think of John as kind of a weird guy. We know of Samson, right? Samson is the guy that we think of when we think of the Nazarite vow, picking up gates and walking, I don't know how many miles with them and setting down, stay there. How do you like that? Or, or just beating up the, the, the whole, the whole town, say I'm going to kill everybody in the town, or, or I'm just going to knock over the building. Right. We, that's what we think of when we think of in Nazarite. But go back and Samuel was a Nazarite. 
and, and you know, Scott Samuel is some kind of old prophet guy walk around with weird sticks and you just don't you know, say things. And, but I want you to notice, you go back and see what people do when Samuel comes to town. See how scared Saul, this king who was taller than everybody, when Samuel came around, I there was something about Samuel. When Samuel came to town, Saul got really scared. Right? Uh, and remember when, when, uh, when we talked about this in one of the sermons that, that Samuel came to town to, to anoint David, and the whole town got scared. Samuel's here. Somebody must have done something, right? The whole town got scared. There's something about Nazareth. People, God did something, and it may have looked different. I don't know that Samuel could pick up things and walk great distances with them. But whenever people put this Nazareth, oh, God did something in them. And he says, what did you go out to see? Now, when he says, what did you go out to see, what he means is, what did you walk from Waukesha to Lake Pewaukee to go see? That's about the distance that people left from Jerusalem to the Jordan River to go see. People didn't go see a wind. You don't travel 30 miles on foot or, or, or uh, 3, 4, 5 miles on foot to go see a wind. There was something impressive. And people came from further than just Jerusalem. People, so, so the whole area, the whole area of Judah, which is a big, big place, was going out to see John. He was an impressive person. And an impressive person had doubts. One of the most impressive people in the history of the Bible had doubts, intellectually. So do not think that you are in some exclusive place when you struggle with something. When you look at something in the scripture, that, I don't know. That's that's pretty hard to believe. I mean, a man could read the scriptures that's written about him. So I'm not sure that's written about me. Well, there are answers for doubt. When we are faced with questions and doubt theological things that people pose to us because we're around people who don't believe. And they want to pose questions to us. And we, we even see that in this in this text. There were a bunch of people who were, who were listening to Jesus. And some of them were people who didn't accept what they were hearing. And they were not just people who were struggling with it, but they just rejected it flat out. And we're around people who reject things flat out. And they will oppose us. And they will argue. And the, the temptation, the temptation, and I'm not saying that these are bad things. These are, these are some good things that we resort to, to shore up our faith. We will resort to theological answers. That's a good thing to do. That's an important thing to do. Know the scriptures and, and know the answers to things. We will resort to science. Someone engages us in a science debate. We want to answer back in a science debate. That's not bad. No science. God, the, the creator of, of the world is the same one that inspired the scriptures. They're not ever going to disagree. Okay. So, so no science. That's fine. Or archaeology. The archaeology that, that, that confirms event after event in the Bible. 
or history, no history. And we, we, we resort to all these things to shore up our faith. And, and I'm not saying that those are bad things. But I want you to notice in our text that Jesus does none of that. Jesus does not shore up John the Baptist's faith by saying, you know those dead people? You know those dead people? Right. He, he, he doesn't talk about any of that. He says, here's what you go tell John. What you've seen and what you've heard. That the blind see and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised and the poor of the gospel preach to them. Tell him what is happening. That's the best answer. People can come at you with all sorts of theological ideas and you can engage them in theology. And you'll go around in circles. Do you know what they can't argue? They can't argue what happens. A uh, man I know, uh, he's passed away now. Uh, he, someone, there was some famous, I guess, way back in the 60s, some evolutionist or atheist or whatever, wanted to debate him on, on something. And he was, you know, Bible college guy or whatever. He had started a Bible college. And, and he wanted, and this, this atheist or whatever wanted to engage him in the debate. So I was on one condition. I want... I'm going to have ten people on the stage and they will each give, give an account of how their belief in Christianity has made them a better member of society. I want you to have ten atheists on the stage that can detail why believing that there is no God has made them a better person and the debate never happened. Because the evidence is there. It doesn't make life better. You can have all your theological things. Right? And you can be, you can be in the midst of a, a workplace, but I'm telling you, watch the lives of people who hold that. It doesn't make them better. Go and tell John what's happening. A lot of people think, I cannot be an evangelist. Because that's a big sounding word. And I haven't been to Bible college. But you know what's happened to you. That's all that's necessary. You can tell a person what's happened to you. You can tell people why, and that is something they cannot argue. There's no theological argument, there's no science argument, there's no history argument that can undo that. That is powerful. And when it comes down to it, those people have all their science and have all their things, and they still have a life that has situations that they can't answer that their foundation can't answer. And in those moments, they are prone to ask why and how. And if someone has shared with them how and why, it's a little thing back there. And they will recall it, quite possibly, in those moments. Maybe not during the debate, but they might recall that a little bit later and go, you know what, there was a person that 
seemed to have some answers for how and why. The problem with confidence is that we can't see the end result sometimes. We don't see the end result of what's happening with, with okay, I, I'm living the life and I'm doing the thing and this is what situation John was. John was teaching and Jesus is the, the lamb and he's coming and all this many thrown in prison. He doesn't see the end result of what, what, what he taught. And sometimes we get there and like, I've started down the road. It's like I'm, you know, you're driving somewhere and way back before you could navigate yourself there. You look at a map and it's like, I think I turned at the right place, but I'm not sure. And you get halfway down the road and you're like, should I turn back? Now being a man, you don't stop at gas station. You don't ask for directions. So, so that I only have two, two choices. I can turn around or I can go straight. Now what if I turn back and I'm on the right road? Not makes things work, huh? Sometimes the worst thing you can do is stop in the middle of the thing and go back. I've got these doubts. Because I can't see the end result. Quitting midstream and starting over. Now I've messed up two things. Answers for doubt. And then he says this really weird thing at the end. Because he turns to those critics that didn't believe anything. He says, you know what you like? You like kids playing Out, outside in the yard. You like kids playing. You ever seen kids play? Kids know, and you, and you can start at a four, five, six, seven-year-old age. So that young age, when they get into a collective, they form society. They do. And there are rules in society. They have rules makers, they have enforcers, they have laborers. They do. And and you ask a five-year-old who's the boss, and they know who's the boss. They know who holds these rules. They form a community and a society, and they know how it operates. It's amazing. And he says, you guys, like little kids, you got your little society there, and you got rules makers. You ever watch the, the rules makers? And they keep changing the rules. You ever watch the kid to keep changing the rules? Why do they keep changing the rules? Because it gives them control. As long as everybody else can't guess the rules, they've got the rules, everybody else has to do what they say. And watch the kid. They'll do this. You and they'll they'll take you have the little kid that keeps saying, Oh no, you're supposed to do this. Oh, you're supposed to do this. And you're supposed to play go no. And they keep going to see it. As soon as someone starts to catch up, they change the rules again because that keeps them as the rules makers. You like the rules makers, he says. We played the flute for you. You didn't dance. Oh, but then we, we so you were supposed to play. We were, I played playing the happy song, you were supposed to dance. Oh, then, then we changed. I changed. I changed. I started playing the sad song and you were supposed to cry, right? And so, so apparently they were playing funeral or something. Because John the Baptist came, and he wore the weird clothes, and uh, he didn't eat all the nice stuff. He ate grasshoppers with honey. He ate the weird food. He didn't come eating your fancy meals. He didn't come doing anything like that. He just stayed out there like the weird guy. And you said, I got a demon possessed. 
Okay? So Jesus came. And you watch Jesus. Jesus went to all the parties. He went into the house. And he taught. And he ate with them. And he went to this house. Oh, Simon the Pharisee is holding a, a thing. So he's over there. And he taught. And he ate with them. And he drank with them. And they said, what? Well, let's change the rules. Jesus is a drunk. He eats too much. Keep changing the rules to control people. And this is what society does. Keep changing the rules. We parented in a generation and in a location where the rules were different. Oh, the Bible is the greatest selling book. You know that. You know what the second most published book is. Huh? Dr. Spock. Who is not from Star Trek. Just in case. I thought it was the care of something of babies or kids or whatever. I can't remember. So, that book is extremely popular overseas. And in Ukraine, it's the Bible on raising kids. Dr. Spock did not read a lot of, from the book of Proverbs. I can tell you that. Because he and Solomon differ. Dr. Spock is very big and this is a good thing, on positive reinforcement, not so much on the negative reinforcement. Solomon was pretty big on negative reinforcement in addition to positive reinforcement. He kind of had a good mix. We were, a, our, our first year over there, we met in a, in a house. We met in the lady, Nina, we met in her living room. And in a small house, a little noise interrupts everything. So Benjamin being about one to two years old, from the make noise that happened. And um, Katie was telling him to not make noise. He didn't always listen. At this point, it became important to deal with the situation because church stopped when <laughs> Benjamin was making the noise. Now, in a small house, when I say small house, I mean... Uh, she had a big apartment, which was about 500 square feet. So you understand a big house over there. In a big house with cement walls, it is very difficult to conceal negative reinforcement. Okay? My wife, I understood enough Russian to know that my wife just got called a hoodlum. The same woman would talk later about how nice Benjamin is. Now, she saw Benjamin on certain occasions, but not all the time. So she wasn't in the house all the time. But she would remark about the results of things. When I tried to point out to her that our children didn't come that way, <laughs> she'd have none of it. There was only two possible reasons for it. They, it was either because they were just born nice or because they were American. They, they figured that maybe there was something that they came over with, you know, that, that, that made kids by comparison a little bit better. No. Wisdom is justified by her children. And this goes back to what Jesus was telling John the results 
prove. The results prove. Look at the things around you. And look at the results of things. And let those be the evidence of whether the philosophy is good or not. Look at the things of Christ. And see the results of it. It is difficult to look at some of the things in the scriptures and go, yeah, I agree with that. Sometimes there are things that we are asked to believe and, 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 and to do that challenge us intellectually. Understand, you don't always get to see the end result. You've got to trust it. And in time, you will see the fruit. And you will see how it works. That's, that's where the faith becomes real. That's where you go, ah. That's where you have this moment that, that God, that Christ is sent back to John the Baptist and say, listen, I know you've struggled with some of these thoughts. But let me tell you what's going on. Jesus knows that John does not have much time and he's like, let, John, let me leave you with this closing thought. And I'm going to leave you with this closing thought. John, you're not going to see the very, very end, but I want you to know what's going on. What you've done and what you've been a part of. And the same thing is true today. What you're a part of, you won't see the end result because it keeps going. If someone dies and invested a lot of things and they haven't seen what you've become. And they haven't seen everything. And they were, they were a person who was a part of something that, that someone died and invested something in them and they didn't see the end result. And, and listen, John, just look at what you can see and, and understand that so much more is going to happen. I know you have intellectual doubts. Everyone does. I wonder if Christ had intellectual doubts. Lord, if there's any other way. If there could be another way, I'm not sure that this is the best thing or the greatest thing for me. Lord, if there's any other way, intellectual doubts. Understand that it did not keep Jesus from his appointed ground. I have the intellectual doubt, but I'm still going to fall through because why? Because I know at the end of it, God is going to do something and it's going to work. Because God always works.